something didn't seem right. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a privilege is ours to have been born and have lived on the side of human history that can look back on the coming of the King of Glory and His first advent. May it give strength and depth to our faith as we eagerly await His second. Use our time and Your Holy Word today to help us think and live as we should between the advents. Looking back at the first and looking forward to His coming in glory. And as always, Lord, give this teacher grace to teach rightly, to teach well, and give the hearers discernment to weigh everything and to hold on to what is good. We pray in the glorious name of Jesus, our Lord and our King. Amen. Well, today's Palm Sunday, of course, and yet the sermon text, if you look at the bulletin, is 1 Corinthians 13 again. So... I hope you're not disappointed. You're wait, no, no palm branches, no donkeys, no stones crying out, no children shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed he comes in the name of the Lord. I don't think I'm uh, just ignoring Palm Sunday and plowing along with my own agenda. We've been getting through uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and, and, and we're going to today. Uh, because there's a connection. There's a connection. The real significance, and it'll take me a little while to, to get there, but, but it's, there is a connection between the very end of 1 Corinthians 13 that we'll look at these last few verses today and that Palm Sunday event. Uh, the real significance of the Palm Sunday event was something that was not best understood by the Palm Sunday worshipers. The ones who were crying out, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it really wasn't understood very clearly by his own disciples. But it was best understood, it's very ironic, the significance of that day and significance of that event was best understood by Jesus' critics and his enemies. They understood that what was happening was that this is a presentation this is a presentation of the arrival of God's kingdom on earth in the person of the king, the promised king of Israel. In Matthew, Matthew, in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 21, it's an editorial comment added by Matthew after, you know, when Matthew's writing it. This is not something that you thought of at the time, you know, that was thought of at the time. But Matthew observes 21.4, this took place, this Palm Sunday thing, this triumphal entry, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, and he's talking about Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. A few verses later, verse 9, it says, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the language, that language are singing, you know, this Hosanna, blessed. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was in part from the 118th Psalm, which would be sung traditionally, you know, at the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover. So it's just something they did at the time of year. You know, we sing certain songs at Christmas. You know, we, we might not understand everything that we're singing, but we're singing these words that, we, that we've been taught. Uh, but those words are of, uh, of the prophecy that God's, God will send his Messiah, his king, and the kingdom is coming, and it's here in the person of the king. Through the prophet Nathan, God promised David that a descendant of his would sit on his throne and would establish would establish his throne forever. These are the words of Nathan, 2 Samuel 7, 13. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A forever kingdom is coming. Now, this was not, really sadly and ironically, this was not well understood by those who were shouting these wonderful things, saying, even using the phrase, king of Israel, laying down the palm branches, laying down their cloaks, giving them a king's welcome. It wasn't well understood. Matthew 21, 10 says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, if that's all it was, I mean, that's a big thing, a prophet. But if that's all it was, they kind of overstated the case back on the road with what they were saying, the 118th Psalm and the cloaks and the palm branches. You know, if that's all they were saying, I... I wonder if Jesus' enemies would have gotten all that wound up about it. But they did get wound up about it. Matthew tells us immediately after the triumphal entry, Jesus entered the temple. He clears it of all the corrupt pigeon sellers and currency changers. He exercises the authority over, of a king over his father's kingdom, over his father's house. He cleans it up. Matthew 21, 15 says, but when the chief priests and the scribes, they're the ones who know what's going on. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? In, in other words, they're saying this, Jesus of Nazareth, whoever you are. Correct these ignorant followers of yours. Correct these people. They are Their language that they're using about you specifically suggests that you are the promised Davidic king, that you're the one who was promised to King David, a descendant of his who would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. They clearly don't understand the theological implications of what they are saying, but surely you do, don't you, Jesus? So correct them. And they call on Jesus to deny the theological and, and eschatological, if you can bear that word, means end times, you know, the end times implications of what was uh, of the people's words of worship 
And of course, and this is what we might expect, Jesus does not deny. He will not deny. What does he do instead? He doubles down, as always. He doubles down. Matthew says, yes. In Matthew, Jesus says, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? It's like here's another. In other words, he's saying he quotes the Old Testament and he says, and he says, you know, God can put words in of praise in people's mouths, the truth of which far exceeds their understanding. God can put words of praise in someone's mouth, and they don't have to understand it. God did it. We say we say things, I was thinking about this this week, we say things all the time that are truer than we really know. Things like God is good. Things like God loves you. True as far as we mean it, but we don't know the half of it. In Luke, Jesus answers, same critic, same charge, you know, same criticism. In, in Luke, Luke has Jesus saying this. He says, Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. No, I won't shut them up. There has to be praise on this day. They have to say what they're saying. Because I am the king. And I have arrived. And this is, this is the... This is the triumphal, we wouldn't say triumphal entry. It always seems to me as like a semi, you know, a bittersweet entry. Because he knows what's coming. Friday's coming. Not a throne, a cross. Now, of course, Jesus said both these things. And, you know, he said, out of the you know, God prepares praise out of the mouths of babes and infants. And he said, if things were silent, the stones would cry out. And he probably said more things as well, but the tone is the same. And the tone is this to his critics, to his, uh, his really his enemies. Yes, I understand the theological implications of what is being, of the things that are being said here today and the things that you've seen here today. The question is, do you, learned men of Israel, understand the implications? I get it. Do you get it? Do you understand the meaning, not only of what you've heard, but what you've seen with your very own eyes? Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, after so many hundreds of years being fulfilled before your very eyes. He says, in effect, in effect, he says, this is what you should get. Behold, your king has presented has been presented to you just as your scripture says he would. Hundreds of years before, and you have seen it if you have eyes to see. Will it save you or will it judge you? But you've seen it. So the point of Palm Sunday is that the kingdom, the king has come as his, and his eternal kingdom has arrived in him 
not in its fullness yet, not in its fullness, not like it will be, but still definitively, truly, actually, and the kingdom of darkness has not overcome it and cannot overcome it. So what does Palm Sunday have to do with 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13, the last part of the chapter, last part of the love chapter? Well, Paul's final argument for the primacy of love over spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 13, and that's what's I've belabored this point. I hope you're not tired of it, but that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. It is about not love in isolation, although it's in isolation on the coffee cups and the wedding programs and the wall hangs, but in the context, it is about the relation of love to the exercise of spiritual gifts. It's really about spiritual gifts. It is that, that this love is the only proper environment in which the spiritual gifts can operate. And his argument in these last verses is that love is the divinely established atmosphere, and this is the Palm, this is the, uh, Palm Sunday connection, in God's eternal kingdom. Not just here, not just in the church, but this is the air that we will breathe for all eternity. This is a manifestation of God's kingdom, God's eternal kingdom, right here, right now. You might say that this love that Paul's talking about is an aspect of God's kingdom that has already arrived. That part's already here. And it's not going anywhere. The gifts, however, those enablements of God given for the common good, that you Christians at Corinth, you know, Paul argues, this is, this is his argument, that you've made it, you've made spiritual gifts the be-all and end-all, uh, uh, measure, the measure of all things in the church at the expense of love. This is his argument. This is his criticism here. You've, you've exalted these spiritual gifts at the expense of love, and they have, and here's his argument, they have... Uh, a divinely ordained shelf life. They're not forever. The love, the love of the kingdom has come, and it's here and staying forever. The spiritual gifts are not here forever. Why would you exalt the temporary over the eternal? First Corinthians thirteen eight. Do we have the passage, Wayne? Yes. Thank you. Love. Here's the argument. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now we're back to talking about spiritual gifts pretty directly, aren't we? Really, it's those verses before that are the coffee cups and wall hanging his wedding programs and everything like that because it's it, the, the connection is not clear to spiritual gifts but now we're talking about spiritual gifts he's talking about the spiritual gift of prophecy as it was known and experienced at the church in Corinth and elsewhere you can leave the verses up Wayne Jesus he, he's, he's talking about the gift of prophecy was it, well would prophecy pass away in some 
broader sense than that? Or are we talking about the spiritual gift specifically? Well, Jesus said, not the smallest letter or stroke of Scripture would pass away would pass away until all is fulfilled. Well, it will not pass away. Not pass away. He's talking specifically about prophetic versions of the various stewardships of God's grace we know as spiritual gifts. And, and what he's saying is that those gifts will pass away. It's very definitive, isn't it? It's very clear. There's not much wiggle room there. He says, will pass away. Similarly, he says tongues. As for tongues or languages. Well, obviously, he's talking about the spiritual gift of tongues or languages. However you set aside how you define that now, whatever it is, whatever it is, and whatever varieties of gifts there are that would be included in that, he is saying that that gift will pass away. He's not talking... Language itself will not pass away, right? It's not language itself. How will we sing his praises for all eternity? And not that there won't be other things to do. Don't worry about that. Without language. But the gift, the spiritual gift that Paul says in the next chapter should not be forbidden, you know, do not forbid to speak in tongues. That, that gift, it says, will cease. Very definitive, isn't it? It will cease, or those gifts will cease. Same thing, Paul, under inspiration of the under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he declares that knowledge will pass. For knowledge, it will pass away. We're not talking about knowledge in general. What's true about knowledge in general in the in the eternal state in the new heaven, new earth? The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're not talking about knowledge. You know, it's not, we're not talking about blissful ignorance in the hereafter. We're talking about a spiritual gift of knowledge that, that will pass away. It will pass away. Some spiritually, and once again, you know these gifts are not defined as well as we'd like them to be. We wish they, boy, we wish they were defined better. What is that gift of knowledge? But some sort of supernaturally imparted knowledge by God to a gifted individual so that they know things they wouldn't know by any natural means for the edification of the church. And by the way, it's not just that prophecies, we're talking about a spiritual gift of prophecy, spiritual gift of tongues, spiritual gift of knowledge that will pass away. We are also talking about a special kind of love that will never end. We're not talking about love in general, however genuine it might be. The smitten young man or smitten young woman may say, my love for you is eternal. It's a lovely sentiment. It's a high compliment. You have to be dis when you hear something like that, you have to be discerning, make a wise judgment. The bottom line, however, is well, we'll see. <laughs> Even at the marriage altar. It's well, we'll see. I always say, 
You know, the, you know you're, this does not depend on the ceremony of any church. The strength of your marriage doesn't depend on the ceremony of any church, the words of any ministry, but on the strength of your characters. Right? Natural love in the fallen world can be subject to... It's not love never ends. You just, it's not a blanket statement. Because love in the natural world, the fallen world, can be subject to spectacular failures. Right? Think of the miserable Amnon whose love for Tamar was turned to hate. Here's the the quote from 2 Samuel. So that the hate with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Well, you know what? You may not get out of middle school before you learn the awful reality of that dynamic. Of love being flipped to, to hate. But... There is a love that there is, the love that's that's Paul is talking about that God is talking about there is a love that never ends it's the one that God pours out in our hearts it's the one that comes to us not from ourselves not generated from within ourselves it's the it, that will never end that's a slice of the kingdom it's the love that God calls us to it's the love that God gives us for one another. And it didn't come from ourselves. It's an aspect of the kingdom that has come. In contrast, stand these gifts that the Christians at Corinth exalted above everything else that the scripture definitely says will cease or will pass away. The big question, and we'll take some minutes here because it's something people think about, know about, have a position on, and things like that, but the big question is, when? (laughs) When will they cease? When will they pass away? And we don't have to wait long for our answer. It comes in the next two verses, 9 and 10. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That word translated perfect there means that which is whole, that which is complete, lacking in nothing. Or it can even mean fully mature. That's English Standard Version up there on the screen or behind me. King James also uses the word perfect when the perfect comes. If you read, a lot of you read the NIV, it says when completeness comes. And the idea is the same. When the sun comes out, the street lights go out, right? When the sun comes out, the street lights go out because there's no need for the street light anymore. Even if the street light were to stay on, it wouldn't do any, it would have no effect whatsoever they've been rendered you know the street lights rendered obsolete by the sun so so what is the perfect then when the perfect comes now two answers two answers have been given historically in the history of the church really both have strong pedigrees Both have been held and defended by Christian theologians who hold a high view of the Scripture. In other words, they've been held by people who believe what the Bible teaches. 
Because the Bible teaches it. It should be believed and obeyed. They've both been taught by people whose names you would recognize and whose teaching you've honored and admired and benefited from. And sometimes you'd be surprised which, which view they held. And by the way, there's nothing in our doctrinal statement here at this church that would prevent someone with either view uh, from joining our fellowship, from signing our, you know, I believe everything that church believes. Either view would fit within the parameters of our doctrinal statement. This should not be a deal breaker. This shouldn't be something that prevents Christians from worshiping and serving the Lord together, loving each other, preserving the unity of God's people. So with that, one position is that the perfect or the complete or the whole is the completion of the New Testament canon. The canon being one end, not something that goes boom, but the, the books that would make up the 27 books of the New, of the New Testament. And the thinking, this is the thinking, this is the thinking, this is the idea. That until the creation, until the completion, rather, of the New Testament that came sometime around the end of the first century, the Lord filled in the gap that would normally be filled by the teaching of God's whole word, teaching of the New Testament, with these great revelatory and confirmatory gifts. You know, they're prophetic gifts, uh, directly divine, direct and divinely imparted. Uh, in knowledge, tongues or languages, interpretation of tongues, uh, the working of miracles is one of the gifts mentioned. Or even some would put gifts of healing in there. And the, in the decades, the idea would be in the decades when the New Testament was like under construction, <laughs> being written, being gathered, being circulated, before the preacher could say, turn in your Bibles too. Before he could say that, God communicated his truths to his people through these revelatory and confirmatory gifts. And when the sun of the New Testament came out, the street lights became obsolete, and they went out and they just passed off the scene. They ceased. They, they passed away. And the Holy Spirit, who gives the gifts just as he desires, stopped giving those gifts that were made obsolete by the whole, full, complete revelation of the New Testament. That's one of the positions. The other position is that the perfect is the fullness of redemption and sanctification that will come to every Christian at the return of Christ. That's, and under this side, the that's when the gifts become obsolete. That's when the sun comes out. And it's not, and I don't really under this thinking, it's not just the gifts that Paul names here for the benefit of the Corinthians. And he names these gifts here, I believe, because these are the ones that, that you know, the tongues and the, and the prophecies and knowledge, because those are the ones, typical of the ones that they would, the Corinthian Christians would exalt as being these are the greatest. These are the best. And if you have this, you're top dog. You know, you're you're a super Christian if you have these. And lesser gifts are for lesser people. And you know, there might even be ungifted people. 
So he, he names these, but under this second view, it wouldn't be just those gifts that pass away, but all of them, all of them are made obsolete by this complete sanctification that comes to all Christians, this complete uh, delivery of everything that's means for us in salvation. And some, some of the gifts, by the way, just to illustrate this, some of the gifts, not the ones we read about here, but some of them seem to be nothing more than exceptionally sanctified Christian virtues, aren't they? Like there's a gift of mercy. Well, whether you have the gift or not, you're, you, we're all supposed to be merciful, aren't we? Aren't you supposed to be merciful? Sure. But someone with the gift, <laughs> it's like, you know, Someone with the gift of mercy, they come in the hospital room, it's like an angel came in, like a slice of heaven came in. Well, listen, that person with that gift, that's a picture of your future in terms of mercy. You know, when the sin is peeled away, when the carnality is peeled away, when you're free from all of these remains of sin, are you going to be merciful? Yeah, you're going to be merciful. More than you are now. Well, one of the spiritual gifts is the gift of faith. Well, we all have faith. If we're Christians at all, we have something less than a mustard seed, right? But your faith is being refined. Your faith, in fact, Hebrews says your faith is being perfected. Perfected. And if you are in Christ... There's coming a day for you when you're going to have as much faith as the most faith-filled person you know here and now, so much so that you would say they have a spiritual gift of faith. So under the second view, it's this this coming, this full coming of the kingdom, this full delivery of sanctification and redemption that is going to make all the gifts obsolete, not just a few that uh, make us nervous. But all of them. So that's the other position. The perfect, the perfect, the completion is the completion of our salvation in Christ, resurrection, full sanctification, to be fully realized. Here's another connection: to be fully realized when He returns, when the Lord returns in His real, not bittersweet, but His real triumphal entry. So, which one is right? While we owe it to one another to extend grace on this matter, it's the three illustrative statements that follow in the text that push me toward the second. Once again, I want to say, we we all fit in, in our church, but push me toward the second interpretation. The first is 1311. And there's, Paul gives like three illustrations. Three, well, I'll just say illustrations of how this, uh, of what it's like. 1311. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Well, okay. That's plain enough. There are some ways of behaving and speaking that are 
perfectly normal, perfectly acceptable, sometimes even adorable in a child, that won't be any of those things in adulthood. Many years ago now, I attended a free church conference in Lexington, Kentucky. Lexington, Kentucky, and a, and a family from the free church there was kind enough to put me up for the night. And I came in, the woman of the house, the mom, uh, introduced herself and her little girl. I was standing there in the doorway, just walked in. I think I still had a, you know, a bag in my hand. And the little girl is introduced to me, and she just beamed at me, just a little, like five maybe. She just beamed at me, and she lifted up her dress to her neck, and she said, I'm wearing my big girl panties today. <laughs> and, it, and it was adorable, right? There's a shelf life on that kind of behavior. There's a shelf life on it. It's not going to be adorable. In fact, I would imagine just as soon as mom showed me to my room, that they had a little talk. I'd say the shit, we were almost right there at the shelf life of when the, you know, there was a little lesson there. So this contrast, so this contrast between childlike and adult thinking and speaking. So which scenario works better? You know, the first few, the second few. Is Paul saying, you know, we have some ways of thinking and speaking now that will just no longer be, in a, be appropriate in about 40 years when we have what we will be called the New Testament at our disposal. Is he saying that? That we're childish in ways now that we won't be in about 40 years when we have the New Testament. Or is he saying there are things about our thinking and reasoning and ways of speaking that are okay for now, but will be a thing of the past when our transformation to Christ-likeness is complete. I already told, I already tipped you, I already told you I tipped to the second view. But I kind of have, saying what I've said to you, I kind of have a, a, a mental image in my mind of, you know, uh, uh, Christians lifting up their dress saying, I'm a historic premillennialist. <laughs> you know? I'm post-tribulational. <laughs> or, I, I, go, I go to the church where God is really working. And you can tell, look at the parking lot. <laughs> or shall, shall, we go, shall we go to church today to worship God or not? Let's weigh it out. I just think there are ways of thinking that we think and we speak and we reason now that just won't have any place where we're going. Second statement. First part of the next verse, verse 12. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then, when the perfect comes, whatever that is, face to face. Now, it would be a mistake to think of the bathroom mirror at your 
home. It, it, that's, don't think of that. You, you get the wrong idea. Uh, the, that mirror at home or any mirror you have is far superior to any mirror that was available in the first century, which could be maybe something not much better, some polished silver or something, just a polished metal, or uh, it'd be wavy and blurry and dark and or full of imperfections. You know, how, how long has it been since you used a reflecting pool to put on your, you know, never, never. So with that in mind, you know, with that kind of thinking, you know, knowing what a, a mirror would be and, you know, knowing what he's talking about, a mirror, which scenario works best? Is Paul saying, right now, our vision of spiritual realities can be blurry and imprecise, leaving us longing for a clearer look. But listen, when the New Testament is complete and we have all the 66 books of the Bible to guide us, not in my lifetime yet, but maybe not in your lifetime, not in your children's lifetime, but certainly in your grandchildren's lifetime, you know, we're talking about maybe 40 years later, uh, then the teaching, the learning, is going to be like being face-to-face -face with your teacher. Face-to-face -face seems like awfully strong language to me to describe knowledge that comes from our study of the Bible. And I don't, and I don't mean to denigrate the Bible or what can be. Bible's our middle name of the church, right? given my life to it. Face to face seems awfully strong to describe what you get out of the out of the study of the Bible. But it does remind me of some things we do read in the Holy Word. Like this, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That reminds me of face to face. Revelation 22.4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. That's the face to face relationship with the Lord that his own long for which remains in our future even yet today, but which is coming. Paul knew plenty about it. He wrote plenty of Bible. He says, it'd be far better to be with the Lord. The third statement's in the second half. And this... And this one strikes me, and, and for me at least, as, as insurmountable, for me. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Wow. Again, which scenario works best? Is Paul saying, now, while the Bible is still in development, our knowledge is partial, but when we have the whole Bible available to us, Old Testament and New Testament, then we will be able to know fully, just as we have been fully known by God. 
There are lots of people who know the Bible better than I do. There are people in this church who know the better know the Bible better than I do. I might know more theology and you know and the, the things like that. But there are but there are people here who say, well, where is that? You know, where you say, where did that happen? Where is that chapter? Isn't there something that says that, that people better than me at, at knowing where it is because they've read it more than I have? So there are people who know the Bible better than I do. But I didn't just fall off the turnip truck either. I'm not a novice. And I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine uh, myself or anyone else presuming to say that through the guidance and study of the Bible, I know fully just as I have been fully known. Or, other scenario, is Paul saying, our knowledge will be complete when he returns, when he frees us from the blinders of the remains of sin, when we've been freed from the body of this death, when we see his face, we should, when, we, when we'll be like him, for we'll see him like he is. And by the way, the promise here is not that our knowledge will be exhaustive like God's is. We'll never be omniscient. God will always be God. We'll always be his limited creatures. We'll have good and eternal reasons to worship him forever and ever and ever. But we will know him on a face-to-face Level in a face-to-face kind of way, in a way that, like Moses did for a time. Back to the gifts. Not dreams, not visions, not promptings, not impressions, but being with Christ. Which is, again, Paul says it's far better. So Paul's larger point is that, and here's the, once again, here's the triumphal, the Palm Sunday connection, is that our real foothold in eternity is not the spiritual gifts, which are all designed for present life in the present age. Our real foothold in eternity is the love that God has poured out in our hearts already, and it's a piece of the kingdom. It's the air of the kingdom. It's the atmosphere of the kingdom. It's the forever part. You know, you have experience as a Christian, right? You have that love part. Not the general love, you know, not the general human love, but this divinely imparted love That is a forever part of your present experience as a Christian. That's not going to stop. Verse 13, so now now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. There can be no church without faith. There can be no church without hope. There can be no church without love. And the, the church will exist 
for all eternity without these special gifts. Why will we be deprived of these gifts? They will be, won't be deprived. They'll be eclipsed. <laughs> eclipsed by the total transformation that we'll experience in and through and by Christ. And the love that you've been given. And that you are growing in if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ. Is a taste. It's more than a taste. It's the experience of eternity to come. Do you have, you have a hard time believing that? Well, you, let, let's put it to the test a little bit. If you have been in Christ over any length of time, and if you've matured in Christ to any degree, you love people you would have never loved apart from Christ. That's the truth of every one of you. If you're truly in Christ, if you've grown at all, if you've got any time at all being a, living as a Christian, living in union with Christ, you love people you wouldn't have loved. In fact, you love people you wouldn't have cared to know apart from Christ. And it, and it wasn't your doing, it's that the love of Christ has become part of you. You belong to His kingdom. So, some church experts say it's all about affinity groups. The church growth experts, rather. Uh, affinity groups. You know, in affinity groups, you have to connect... Yeah, you know, to really do well, you have to connect the elderlies to the elderlies, empty nesters to empty nesters, families with teens at home to families with teens at home, young marriage to young marriage. With the younger ones, it would be even helpful to, to separate out the, the young couples with kids, you know, toddlers to with the, from the dinks, you know, the double income, no kids. You know, you, to get them hooked up with each other. Get them hooked up with each other, and that's what makes people stick, you know. They stick to these affinity groups, you know. They, that's what you want. And, of course, it works if you can pull it off. But, you know, there are no such instructions in the New Testament, are there? It's not modeled in the New Testament, is it? We're not told to do it because the church is not about natural affinity groups. It's about a supernatural affinity group, and it's Christ himself. The New Testament, the gospel, Jesus, his kingdom, it's a supernatural affinity group, a group that would never have come together apart from the arrival of the kingdom. <laughs> apart from the king. The stickiness is the love of God blossoming, growing, working in us. So, you know, the way it really is, there's going to be real love between young and old. Young marrieds and empty nesters. Wealthy and poor. City mice, country mice. 
even Republicans and Democrats. <laughs> and in our culture, no greater evidence of divine power could be imagined <laughs> than that. You love, you love because the king has come and he's brought, the, the kingdom is coming already. Not in its fullness yet, but certainly for real. And you have already been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to his kingdom of light and love. Lord, may the love in our hearts that you have been given, you have given to us, be a taste for us of eternity to come. For, for that's what it is. Peel away the layers of carnality that, that now hinders us, obscures it. And may we love the experience of eternal life that is ours right now. Your love poured out in us. And Lord, may those outside the love of Christ who may be here today be drawn to it powerfully for their eternal blessing, your eternal glory, and our everlasting joy. We pray in the name of him who loved us while we were yet sinners. Jesus our Savior. Jesus our King. Amen. Let us stand.